Once upon a time, man had a love affair with fire. Robert R. McCammon, Swan Song. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm one of your hosts, Stephanie. And I'm your other host, Rachel. Joining us today, we have P.T. Hilton, author of several book series, including the Deadlock Trilogy and the Vampire World Saga, as well as co-host of the Readable Writers Podcast. Unfortunately, the world has ended. So get your rations and weapons ready, because we're talking about post-apocalyptic horror on this episode of Books in the Freezer. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash booksinthefreezer. Happy listening! So thank you for joining us, PT. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm curious what's going to happen with the podcast now that the world's ended. Like, are you going to have to distribute it on like vinyl record? What's going to happen? I think we just get to go home. So I think we're done here. That was a good <laughs> session, guys. Thanks. But you actually have a podcast yourself. So how about let's start and talk about the podcast that you just launched. Sure. So the podcast is the difficult to say readable writers podcast. It is a podcast for readers. And each episode, my co-host and I have an author on to talk about one of their books. And we have a section where we talk about it with no spoilers, kind of for people who have not read the book. And then we have a section at the end with spoilers for people who have read the book. So one of our ideas, we're both writers and kind of the idea is as writers were always asked to talk about like the premise of the book, but we never get to talk about like the ending or, you know, the way it all comes together. So we wanted to have a podcast that we could really dive into one specific book and then also give the author a chance to go deeper into it if they wanted to and, and talk about the ending a little bit. We're just a couple episodes in. Our most recent episode, I think, as this goes up, is an interview with Chris Sorensen about The Nightmare Room. I'm so excited to listen to that. That's going to be great. I love the fact that when you ask questions and like do your interviews, you do it from a writer's perspective. So you ask a lot more about like the writing process and why you do things. And because we've done a few author interviews ourselves and kept listening to your interview and being like, oh, that's so smart. I wish we had thought of a question like that. So I think you really bring a different perspective. Like you think to ask questions that wouldn't even cross my mind, but I find the answers absolutely fascinating. Oh, thank you. We tried to do it from the reader's perspective, but I think as writers, that's just kind of as natural to be what we're curious about. So we end up asking a lot of those questions. It's a good blend of both. And like you mentioned, the first episode is fantasy, but then your second episode is all about horror. So it's kind of a mix of a lot of your favorite genres. And I think you really read and write, which we'll get into a blend of like science fiction, horror, fantasy. So is it fair that the podcast kind of reflects your own reading and writing 
case? Yes, for sure. We wanted to dive into those genres that we love. So fantasy, science fiction, horror, and probably even we'll bring in some thrillers eventually. And then our other goal is we wanted to have a nice mix of traditionally published authors and indie authors, because I know from being kind of in the booktube community and then also from being in some Facebook groups with readers of indie books that a lot of times people get kind of siloed off and kind of read one or the other. Like there's a lot of really passionate indie readers who don't even really read much traditionally published stuff and vice versa. So we wanted to kind of bring those two worlds together a little bit and hopefully we can have some authors on there that people haven't heard of that we can expose people to some new works in the genres that they love. That's awesome. And I love the idea of having a spoiler section because I think Rachel and I know doing this and booktube, you kind of have to be very careful about what you say about a book so you don't give anything away and ruin the experience for someone who hasn't read it yet. But I can imagine how fun it must be to just really get into the ending and talk all the spoilers you want. Yeah, it's kind of weird as a writer because it's like if you're a car manufacturer and you only got to talk about like the paint job and you never got to talk about like the engine, you know. So I think as for writers, it's fun to get deeper into the spoilery stuff. Although our first episode, Michael J. Sullivan, who's a fantasy author, he kind of yelled at us at the end. It was like, those questions weren't spoilery enough. <laughs> really, the idea is like just to let the author like take the gloves off and just tell them, all right, everyone who's listening at this point has read the book. So feel free to be as spoilery as you want with these answers. That's so funny. I remember when we were interviewing Paul Tremblay during our discussion, which we purposely said we were going to keep spoiler-free, I felt like he dropped a few hints about his latest book that to me were flat-out spoilers, so <laughs> I was really torn during editing whether or not to keep him in because he was the one who said them, but we've always kept a rule of really, like Stephanie said, trying to keep spoiler-free, so I think it's funny that Michael Sullivan was on the other side being like, no, no, bring it on, where are the spoilers? <laughs> So you mentioned being a horror fan. What kind of horror stories are you drawn to? So the first horror book that I ever read was Misery by Stephen King. I think I was about 13 when I read that. And that book definitely, like, I don't think it's going too far to say it changed my life because it's definitely the book that made me want to be a writer. And at the time, it just, like, totally blew my mind. And I haven't read it since. I don't think I want to read it again because maybe it won't hold up as well as it does in my memory. But what I loved about it and what I love about reading horror to this day is just the idea of, like, having a character go through like basically the completely terrible horrible things and just their world be torn apart and then like seeing what's left of them you know what can they stand up to the challenge at the end after they've been through all this stuff and I love stories that do that in a weird way I kind of think horror is like one of the most like optimistic and like hopeful genres because you know it puts the characters through all these things but then you know most of the time not always but a lot of the time the characters come through it and discover a strength within themselves to defeat whatever terrible evil they're facing. So those are the kind of horror stories I love, the ones where the characters like face down impossible odds and then somehow their character has risen through it at the end of it all, I guess. Now, I know you've listened to the podcast before, so you kind of knew this was coming. We've gotten in the habit lately of asking our guests, what is the scariest book you've ever read? Yeah, sure. So a couple of my runner-ups have been mentioned lately, and I was like listening scared, hoping that no one would pick my number one. Oh. <laughs> but like Chelsea on your Queer Horror episode talked about The Girl Next Door by Jack Ketchum, which is definitely on my short list for just being so realistic and feeling so real. And I can remember if it was Christy Demeester who talked about Zombie by Joyce Carol Oates, but that's another one that's definitely on my list. 
My number one, though, I would say is a book called The Grin of the Dark by Ramsey Campbell. So, like, clowns don't normally, like, scare me or anything. I'm not, like, a scary clown guy by any means. But this is a book about a sort of clown who is very scary. The premise of it is the film critic decides to research and write a book about this comedian from the silent film era named Tubby Thackeray. So he's, like, going back and finding these old silent films and watching them. And it's this comedian who is and clown who is supposedly so funny that people would die laughing at his performances. There's just something so eerie about that whole like silent film, like finding an old silent film and watching it. And and this creepy clown who may be more than he seems is kind of looking back at you through this silent film. So that book really unnerved me, I'd say. I'm adding that to the TBR right now. Yeah, this happens every time people bring up books we haven't heard of. I just bought two Ramsey Campbell books. Now you're going to buy a third. Yep. <laughs> I noticed that for some reason, all the books that I picked for this episode, including that one, like have semi-mediocre ratings on like Goodreads and stuff like that. So maybe I just have weird taste. Sometimes those books are the best, though. Yeah. When everyone is torn about them. When you have like love or hate for it. So while we were doing the reading and preparations for this episode, we tried to make a distinction between post-apocalyptic science fiction and post-apocalyptic horror. How do you differentiate between the genres? Man, this is kind of a tough one in this genre. Like, there's such a fine line. But I had a writing teacher who once described horror in a way that I really liked. He said that horror is the biggest possible ideas in the smallest possible space. So if you think of like a, you know, a haunted house or a ghost story, you know, if a science fiction book was going to tackle that, they'd be all kinds of questions about, oh, this proves that the afterlife exists and how is society going to change because we've discovered that this ghost is real, that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, a horror book is going to be more about the really personal journey that someone goes through of whether it's you know fighting this ghost or proving it's real whatever it's much more personal i think so for me and this is just my opinion i guess but the post-apocalyptic horror is much more personal and kind of in general less interested in society and how society is going to rebuild itself and more interested in like maybe one family or one small group of people and how are these people going to survive all these terrible things that are happening around them I like that. It's very interesting. It's a lot more insular, like a smaller scope. Yeah, it's a tough distinction to make. And kind of as a follow-up question, I see people lump together the terms post-apocalyptic and dystopian a lot. In your mind, do you have a distinction for that? Yes. So for me, dystopian is a society that is taking some weird turn and post-apocalyptic is more there is no society left or at least not in the way that we would recognize it. At least the majority of society has been destroyed. That's the way I think about it anyway. I don't know if that's the technical definition or not. It matches my definition. So I'm going to call that right (laughs) because you're making me feel better about how I've been differentiating it. Because I've heard people use those terms interchangeably. and I'm like, I don't think they're really the same thing. Yeah. The other thing you'll see a lot in the post-apocalyptic world, the kind of post-apocalyptic books that I don't like is there's a lot of like prepper kind of books, you know, that's like, all right, the world is falling apart. And now like your main character is the only one who is smart enough to stockpile weapons and food or whatever and is the only one who's able to survive. There's a lot of those kind of books that is not my favorite subgenre of post-apocalyptic. And even though we're talking horror, we do have a lot of non-horror post-apocalyptic stories that we love. So do you want to quickly mention some of them here just to kind of get them out of our system? Well, I mentioned it when we talked about our Canadian episode, but I have big love for Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Just absolutely love that story. 
Yeah, didn't we talk that that was considered cozy post-apocalyptic horror? Wasn't that <laughs> the label we were chatting about before this episode, three of us? I think so. Yes, if you were to ask me which post-apocalyptic out of the ones that we're talking about today, I would pick this one 100% because even if I die from the flu, I will take that because the chapter where someone is dying from it really didn't sound that bad. Like it was just a woman on a hotel bed getting like really sleepy <laughs> and like drifting off. And I'm like, I'll take that. That's fine. That's the one I'll go with. That does sound cozy. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that's cool. <laughs> she didn't get into the grotesque. It was more about people and basically following these characters and her theme about the perseverance of art. So it really didn't lean on the horrors that would befall a society. I mean, there was stuff that happened and people that rose up and took advantage of other people, but you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and one I love is Bite by K.S. Merbeth, which is like an action-adventure science fiction story about a future where people have resorted to cannibalism. But despite that synopsis, I really can't call it horror. It's just fun and it's not meant to be horrifying, so. So I thought I'd mention it here, but that one's just great if you enjoy like, you know, some good cannibalism. <laughs> and who doesn't? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Those sound really good. The two that I wanted to mention quick is the comic book series Sweet Tooth by Jeff Lemire. And that's the story of this disease called the affliction is kind of torn through society. And since this disease, the only children born are this new weird hybrid of human and animals. So like a baby will be born and be like kind of a half human, half deer is the main character. And all these really weird things. But it looks really cool in comic book form. And basically the story is this kind of this tough, gruff old guy takes this young half deer boy kind of under his wing and they have an adventure a lot of comic book series are kind of just ongoing and never end so you're never sure you know is this going anywhere this one has a very distinct and really awesome ending so i highly recommend sweet tooth if you're into post-apocalyptic stuff that one sounds so good i always see the cover i'm like it looks like bambi but it's probably not that cozy <laughs> yeah it does get pretty dark the other one I wanted to mention, and I'm man, I'm nervous to say the name of this book, Apocalypticon by Clayton Smith. I nailed it. It's basically like a humorous take on the post-apocalyptic world, kind of in the vein of like Zombieland or a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of a look where basically these two friends are in this post-apocalyptic world and they're tired of everything being depressing and sad and struggling for food and they decide they're going to go to Disney World. So they take a road trip to go to Disney World and that is what the book's about. And it's pretty funny. That's awesome. That sounds kind of like The Last Man on Earth. Have you watched yes. that? Yes. <laughs> I love yeah. that. That's also another post-apocalyptic world. I'm like, I could live there. Absolutely. Just kind of do what I want. Yeah, I love the scene in that show. It might be in the first episode even where he's just like traveling around in his RV, like taking the carpet from the Oval Office and things and like yes. <laughs> Michael Jordan's jersey and crazy things like that. No, but that sounds awesome. I have never even heard of Apocalypticon. Yep, that is a hard one to say. So I'll have to look into that. That sounds fun. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's it's got a cool cover where it's like this zombie-ish hand coming up out of the ground. But if you look at it closely, you realize it's like Mickey Mouse's hand. Nice. Speaking of Last Man on Earth, there is a lot of media in post-apocalyptic genre. What are some really good movies set after the apocalypse? I want to talk about Mad Max because I'm really obsessed. Have you guys seen the new one? Yes. Yes, I love it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> My husband and I made this pact that I really wanted to go watch a chick flick and he really wanted to watch Mad Max. So he agreed that I'd watch his movie and he'd watch mine. Of course, we watched Mad Max first and I ended up loving it. And so, of course, he decided that he didn't have to watch the chick flick because it wasn't really a fair deal because I enjoyed it. So <laughs> clearly <laughs> the deal was off. So I should have hid my enjoyment more. But I really like that one. 
One very recent one that I liked a lot was A Quiet Place. And I think that's a really good example of taking the post-apocalyptic horror and making it like small scale where just even though it's a post-apocalyptic setting, it's totally focused on just one family and the ways that they kind of try to survive this crazy apocalypse thing that's happening. Jim from The Office. Yeah, Office alum. How do you feel about that, Stephanie? Can you see him as not Jim? I think he has done a good job at trying to rebrand himself after being Jim for so long and trying to be just something on the totally opposite side of the spectrum. So I'm good with it. I want to talk about one that's actually based on a book that I have not read. That is Children of Men. Mm, Yeah, that's good. It's like a future where women are infertile and like at the beginning of the movie, it's just like the world is chaos and on the news they're showing that like the youngest person on the planet who was 18 has just died and like no one's been able to reproduce and then within this like crazy world there's a pregnant woman that they have to protect it's really great a whole lot of it is very bleak but just an amazing movie amazing cinematography i still have to get to the book by pd james and both the books i'm going to be talking about also have movie adaptations but they're both terrible so i'll get to those (laughs) when they come up but i'm not going to personally recommend them here Oh, man. Some unrecommendations from Rachel. Yeah, I'm just bringing in the negativity today. (laughs) So how do you guys think you would fare in an apocalypse? Do you guys have game plans? Well, I think we've established that me by myself would die in the first five minutes. But as a couple, me and my husband actually do have a game plan. You would be surprised how much time we've spent discussing this. My husband brings this up a lot. As I mentioned, he really looks like zombie fiction. So whenever watching The Walking Dead, he's always like, okay, so at the end of the world, what we're going to do is we're going to go to my dad's house because he has all the guns. We shop at Costco, so we have a lot of canned goods. And he has this whole plan worked out. Even in our home, I probably shouldn't like announce this to the world. But my father-in-law helped us to renovate our house. And the third thing he did, like, you know, in priorities of what you need to do to fix up your house is build us a mini panic room. So we definitely have one of those in our house. It's like hidden somewhere wear in our basement that I'm not supposed to say where but I'm like why do we have this it's so dumb (laughs) so yeah I sadly have a lot of preparations in place for this and as a family we are prepared so how about the two of you are you going to be joining me at the end of the world yeah I have a new plan now which is to go join Rachel's family (laughs) pretty much we have friends that are like we're coming to your place you have the guns and the panic room I think my plan is stay put like every post-apocalyptic story movie video game whatever they're always like traveling somewhere and it always goes horribly so i'm just gonna hang out at my house i guess i'll have to learn how to hunt or something but other than that i think you know stay put try not to attract attention because those road trip post-apocalyptic things never go well (laughs) they really don't so true you think they would stop trying to do that I think my husband is a little more prepared than I am. I always joke that my game plan is to just try to go out with the first wave of whatever it is that hits us. (laughs) But in all seriousness, probably like PT, just stay where we're at. We are surrounded by the woods. So I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, considering maybe what kind of apocalypse we have. You'll just hide out and read. It'll be like that episode of The Twilight Zone all the time in the world. Have you guys seen that one? Yes, that's a favorite of mine. Yes, I love it. Is it a nuclear apocalypse and there's a bank teller who's always getting in trouble because he's reading when he's not supposed to be and he gets assigned to do a job at the bank in the basement and he misses the nuclear attack and he goes up and the world is basically gone and he's so excited because now he has all the time in the world to read. Oh, it's like a dream come true. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So going back to fiction, PT, would you say there are any particular themes or trends that you tend to see in 
post-apocalyptic horror stories? Yes. So I think there's two different types of post-apocalyptic stories. One is the type where our group of people that we're with has survived the initial apocalypse and they've learned how to deal with whatever the crazy monster or illness or whatever is and then something in their environment changes and they have to face the monster again in a new more challenging way. I think A Quiet Place is a good example that they've adapted really well and have survived for years in this post-apocalyptic world but then something happens that I won't ruin and makes it much harder for them to survive against these crazy monsters. So I think that's one type. The other type that I see a lot would be where a group has survived the initial, you know, flu or pandemic or nuclear attack, whatever it is, and then a new challenge arises. So a lot of times it's like the people break up into two groups and like fight each other or something. So I think those are the two types. And would you say for the most part, like, are these depressing stories? Yeah, I think they can be depressing. I think a lot of times, though, when you get to the end, there can be a hopeful ending a lot of times in post-apocalyptic books. I guess it's a question of do you want to wade through all the terrible things happening to get to that hopeful ending or not? Yeah, that's a good point. I also noticed that a lot of the books we're talking about today are very, very long. I feel like I cheated and picked out the shorter books of the collection, but it definitely lends itself to longer books. Do you think the authors just want to spend more time like establishing either the world or the characters, and that's why these books tend to be on the longer side? Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe the author's imagination just starts to run wild and think of all the possibilities. It's a big world out there, I guess. When it ends, they want to check out all of it. Sometimes that's a a bad thing, but can be a little self-indulgent at times. So post-apocalyptic stories, they're very popular in the horror genre. And why do you think so many horror authors write at least one of these stories? That is a really good question. I think there's like two kind of like lesser reasons and one main reason. The lesser reasons, I think, are A, like you said, it's really popular. So, uh, you know, when there's lots of readers clamoring for a certain type of book, of course, authors are going to go there occasionally. That's one less reason. I think another reason is that, like, in every horror book, you kind of have to deal with the question of, like, why aren't they going to the authorities? Or if they do go to the authorities, why can't the authorities help? Or, you know, why aren't they using their cell phone in this situation? And post-apocalyptic kind of (laughs) just makes those questions easier because they're all alone. There's no one else. There's no one to go to for help. So I think that setup is really lends itself to horror novels. Probably the biggest reason, though, is in some ways post-apocalyptic books are kind of the ultimate horror book in that the bad guys already won. You know, whatever it was wiped out the good guys, and there's only these survivors left. So I think a lot of writers are fascinated with the idea of playing out horror scenarios to be like, what would happen if the good guys were not able to stop whatever's happening and it destroyed everything? So I think those are a few reasons So that ties in really nicely with the fact that you have written your own post-apocalyptic series called The Vampire World Saga. And I've read the first book in that, which is The Savage Earth. And that is set in a future where monstrous vampires have taken over the Earth and the last surviving humans have fled to an airship. So tying it back to that question, why did you decide to write a post-apocalyptic story? Yeah, thank you for reading that book and for talking about it. I think the reason that I wanted to do it was probably those similar reasons, but I also really liked the idea of having this group of humans who were just on the run and were basically facing off against a pretty much undefeatable foe. Like in the story, the vampires are totally feral and they're just everywhere. And like if you are on the surface of the earth at night, you just pretty much, you're done. That's it. So I really like the idea of these humans who are just going up against this basically unstoppable foe and just doing it again and again and again and just doing whatever it takes to survive. So that probably sounds pretty bleak. It's not a bleak book. It's it's a fun book. I'd agree with that. 
despite how serious the situation is, you brought some entertainment into it. This is something I really like is the fact that your story is a good balance of dealing with a really like severe situation. Like it is truly a post-apocalyptic situation, but at the same time, I wasn't depressed reading it. I actually found it to be very entertaining and found myself really rooting for the main character that tough female Alex was just like this kick butt female character, but still like realistic and not stupid, which I always appreciate in books. Awesome. Well, thank you. A lot of the credit for that goes definitely to my co-author, Jonathan Benneke. He's really, really good at like mapping out action scenes. Like I'm not very good at action scenes. Like I'm like sword fight and then (laughs) good guy wins sword fight. (laughs) You know, he really maps it out and really plans out almost like choreography of exactly what's going to happen in the action scene and keeping the drama and suspense and little twists within the fight, the, the things that I would never think of. So he does an awesome job with those. And that's a really good point. So how do you co-write? Like in a nutshell, I imagine you both like on Skype, like typing together in a Google Doc (laughs) saying like, okay, should we use this word or that word? Okay, are you writing this sentence? Or do you go like back and forth and say, you do chapter one, I'll do chapter two. I have no idea how you would do that as an author. Yeah, I do know some authors who collaborate in that way where they kind of trade off chapters or some that even like trade off certain characters. Like you write everything this character says, I'll write everything these other characters say. We do it a little differently though. So Jonathan and I, we've been friends since kindergarten. We have collaborated on a lot of different things. He's also my co-host on the Readable Writers podcast. And after college, we had a little film production company where we did little short films and things like that. So we've done a lot of different collaborative things. We work really well together creatively. So, you know, I'd written some books. He had not written books before, but he came to me with this idea for this book. And I really liked the idea. I wanted to work with him. I knew we worked well together. So that's kind of the origin of how we started working together. And the way that we do it is we'll get together on Skype or whatever and talk through like the high level of the book so like here's what happens in act one act two act three just real high level and then he goes off and writes an outline outline is makes it sound like it's not very detailed though if the end book is maybe eighty thousand words his outline will be like 40,000 words. So it's like very, very, very detailed of exactly what happens. And then I'll come in and turn that outline into prose. So he's kind of coming up with the specifics of exactly what happens at every step of the way. And then I'm kind of polishing that into prose. And then he'll do another pass and we'll go back and forth a few more times, ironing it all out. But high level, that's kind of the process for us. Oh, that's fascinating. I was really curious reading that, trying to figure out, you know, I was like, oh, is this PT writing here? And I think it's funny that we asked you a lot of questions in this episode all about like defining the post-apocalyptic genre. Like, is it science fiction? Is it horror? Because as an author, I've said this with your other book, Regulation 19, but I love your stories, but your book's really been genre. Like this book is science fiction, but vampires tend to be horror, but in some ways they can be fantasy. And I find it so hard to put you in a box PT. And I mean that in the best way possible. Is that something you purposely try to do? Or do you just write stories and then kind of see where they fit into the different genre labels? Yeah, no, I purposely try not to do that. And I'm really bad (laughs) at it. Oh, no, I like it. Yeah, it'd probably be better for my sales if I could, you know, write more clearly delineated things. It's kind of hard to market my books just because, you know, I'm always thinking, who do I market this to? Horror fans, sci-fi fans, what? Generally, when I'm writing, I'm just trying to, you know, write the coolest things I could think of and the best story I can think of. And I don't think too much about the genre until I'm done. But my last couple books, I've been trying to be a little bit better about thinking about that up front. So it's a little bit (laughs) easier to get it in front of the right readers. But yeah, I think that it just kind of comes natural that I'm blending all the things that I love together. 
Well, don't worry. I love it. I think it makes the book really fresh and <laughs> I read all those genres. So it always works for me. So don't change what you're doing on my behalf at all. Awesome. Thank you. So maybe we should actually talk about some book recommendations. And I figure we should maybe kind of start with like the big one. Do you want to go first, PT? I would love to. Yeah. So the first book is The Stand by Stephen King. This is a book about a super flu and basically about 99% of the world or a little bit more is killed by a super flu. And then the survivors have to find a way to rebuild society and then two leaders kind of emerge and the remaining people find themselves in a new battle to decide what this new society is going to be, which these leaders to follow. This definitely fits into a lot of the stuff that we were saying before. You know, it's definitely a, a really big book. It's definitely one of those books where they survive the initial apocalypse. And then there's a, a new challenge with these leaders, one kind of good, one kind of bad coming up. So a little bit of background. This was Stephen King's fourth novel after Carrie Salem's Lot in The Shining. He actually had a couple other novels, I think, under a different name, but his fourth novel under his name. It's also the first appearance of Randall Flagg, who, if you've read much Stephen King, you know is kind of a reoccurring character who pops up at odd places in a lot of different books. This is kind of where he comes from. And I think for a lot of people, including me, this was like the first really big post-apocalyptic book that we read. And I remember reading it, you know, in high school and it just blew my mind how epic it was. I couldn't believe how much time I was getting to spend with these characters and all the crazy things that were happening. It was definitely a super important book to me. I've read a lot of Stephen King and I think this book definitely showcases probably both the best and the worst of Stephen King. It has a lot of the tropes that he kind of relies on a lot of bit in his books, and it can be a little bit self-indulgent at times, but it really showcases his ability to create amazing characters. Like some of the characters in this book are people that, you know, I still feel like I'm friends with however many years after reading it. There are a few different editions of this book. I think originally it was published in 1978 and it was set in 1980. And then I'm not sure why they did this, but a few years later, they did like an updated version and changed the setting to 1985 and like changed some of the pop culture references to like update them and things like that. And then there was another, a third edition, which was the complete and uncut edition where they added back a bunch of stuff that had been previously cut by an editor. Some might say that (laughs) maybe that stuff should have been left cut. The uncut one was the version that I read, and that one updated the setting again to 1990, and again, I think, updated some of those like pop cultural references and things like that. So I've only read that version, but it's kind of odd that there's three versions out there, and you might get a little bit different experience depending on which of those that you read. That's interesting. I didn't know that they updated the setting. The only thing I knew about it was that there was like the longer uncut, you know, unabridged or whatever version, and then the edited version. I did not know that there was different times. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't know why they did that. I can see the urge. Like, I always want to go back. And my book, Regulation 19, has, like, dates in it. And I'm always like, man, I wish I wouldn't have put those dates because now it seems old. I want to go back and update those dates. I think for a scariness rating, the vast majority of this book really is probably room temperature, I would say. But there are a few, like, really classic scenes in it. There's a really famous scene that's pretty scary where a character is trying to escape New York City through this tunnel after the apocalypse. And there's a few really classic scenes. So for those scary scenes, I think I'm going to put it in the fridge overall. The book I'm going to talk about is probably comparable to The Stand, just in its epic scope and door-stopping length. That is Swan Song by Robert McCammon. 
kind of apocalypse, though, is nuclear. This also takes place in the 80s. So after a nuclear war, groups of survivors are trying to make their way through this desolate landscape. And you do have the group that is basically evil and the group that is good. I loved this book. There was a lot of great characters. This book also, I should say, has a lot of kind of fantasy, magical realism elements. And there is a girl named Swan who possesses a power that might be able to restore the world to how it was. And you have a character named Josh, who before the war was a wrestler named Black Frankenstein, who is basically trying at all costs to protect Swan. And the villains were also great. There was a character named Roland, who was kind of a boy when the nuclear apocalypse happened and you just see him develop into this psychopathic monster as the story goes on and he was just crazy as a character this also had so many great scenes i am definitely thinking of the kmart scene if this ever got adopted i would just be really excited to see that kmart scene and if you've read the book you know what i'm talking about so i really enjoyed this book again it's an epic story there's a lot of traveling and adapting and trying to figure out how to survive in this new landscape and a new way of living. So for me, I would say mostly this book would be room temperature with some fridge scenes thrown in. And PT, you've read this as well, right? Yes, I have. I agree that it's got to be in the top couple Kmart scenes of all time. (laughs) I think I read this very shortly after the stand. So sometimes they kind of coagulate my mind a little bit or something. But I do remember greatly enjoying this as well. Really? Because I bought the stand while I was reading this and I was thinking like, I can't read them too close together because just in scope and in the character focus and in like the good and evil storyline, like I can't do that. I have to separate them so that I can think about them differently. So that's crazy. Also like two giant books back to back. (laughs) Yeah, give yourself a little break in there. Well, I'm feeling pretty smart because I also wanted to talk about a classic, but I went with one under 200 pages. But I want to talk about I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, which I just recently read for this episode and absolutely loved. This is a story of Robert Neville, who appears to be the last surviving person of a vampiric pandemic that swept across the globe and killed almost everyone. He lives alone in his fortified house while vampires come out at night and try to lure him out of his house. This was published in 1954 and heavily influenced both the vampire and the zombie fiction that came afterwards. So I love that it kind of blends the two together. They're definitely vampires. They have a lot of the classic signs like aversion to garlic, sunlight, mirrors, crucifixes, etc. But they're also a bit zombie-like in nature. There is a bit of an element of reanimation from death. And you also see lower levels of brain activity. At first, they're just kind of like hordes surrounding his home, kind of clamoring for him to come outside. And what I love so much about this book, well, honestly, I loved a lot, but was the fact that the main character is very scientific and practical in his approach to dealing with this world of vampires because he goes about conducting experiments, trying to figure out the scientific explanation of the disease and basically explain away the vampire symptoms. And it just really appealed to the rational side of my brain. I am very much like a logical person. So I just related to it so much. I was like, yes, I would be the same way. So he was trying to figure 
figure out why garlic was affecting them. So he tried injecting it in their veins or like rubbing it on their skin and doing all these like weird experiments and coming up with all this research. And I just loved it. I was like, yes, I would be that person like sitting in my house trying to like figure it out. And despite vampires clawing at the door, I'd be like, no, there's no vampires. I'm such a skeptic that I could see vampires and still be like, yeah, there's got to be a logical explanation. I wouldn't even believe it for a second. And I also loved Robert's monologue in this story. I read this as an audiobook, which was a really good way to experience it because it really captured his isolation. And I just found his whole narrative just haunting. You really get to see how alone he is. And the story very much goes through the mundane tasks of living. He talks about the fact that he has to floss his teeth because there's no more dentist at the end of the world and how he gets enough food and gas and collects enough garlic. And I just loved everything about it. The narration was done by Robert Sundane and he was amazing. I highly recommend that. And for me, I was putting this in the fridge at least. It's almost psychological, at least for me. I found the isolation particularly terrifying more than the vampires or anything happening in the world. So I just love that one. And again, that's I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. Have either of you read this? Yes, I have. It's funny. So I went to college with a guy who was really, really into the 1970s movie adaptation of this that was called Omega Man and starred Charlton Heston as the main character. And it's super cheesy, but for some reason that was my friend's favorite movie and he would always be watching that as he'd like so i've seen the charlton heston version of this way too many times i think yeah i've heard that the will smith version is terrible and has absolutely nothing to do with the book sadly yes i have too i haven't seen it the next book that i wanted to talk about is run by blake crouch the type of apocalypse in this one it's kind of a spoiler to say but i'll just say violence i guess for now i'll just read the synopsis because i think it's a interesting well-written synopsis it says five days ago a rash of bizarre murders swept the country senseless brutal seemingly unconnected four days ago the murders increased tenfold three days ago the president addressed the nation and begged for calm and peace two days ago the killers began to mobilize Yesterday, the power went out. Tonight, they're reading the names of those to be killed on the emergency broadcast system. You're listening over the battery-powered radio on your kitchen table, and they've just read yours. Your name is Jack Kolkoff. You have a wife, a daughter, and a young son. You live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. People are coming to your house to kill you and your family. You don't know why, but you don't have time to think about that anymore. You only have time to run. So, first of all, I wanted to get an indie book on here. This was actually a pretty important book in my life in that this was, I think, the first indie published book that I read and really the one that made me interested in doing that. I kind of had some, you know, preconceived notions about self-published novels and whether they could be good or not. And I read this. I was like, whoa, this is the kind of thing that I love to read. I didn't know that great authors like this were just putting their stuff out there. So it definitely was a big book in my life in that way. It's just like basically people start committing violence and targeting groups of people, certain people that are selected, and we don't know why. We don't know why these people are being targeted. It's a little bit of a cheat to put it in post-apocalyptic because it kind of starts mid-apocalypse, I would say. But it's incredibly fast-paced. The family is on the run by the beginning of chapter two, and basically they're just on the run for the rest of the book, and you're just following them as they try to stay alive, try to figure out what the heck is going on, why everyone they encounter basically is trying to kill them. It is sort of a divisive book if you look at the reviews, and I think a lot of the negative reviews for it are kind of mad about the explanation for what happened and the fact that without getting too spoilery about it, you know, it's left a bit mysterious. And I think my interpretation of that is the science fiction fans 
who are reading it and wanting like a logical explanation for everything don't like it as much whereas more the horror fans who are more used to ambiguous things happening that we don't always have a logical explanation for tend to like it a little bit more yeah i could see that like we're pretty tolerant we actually really enjoy ambiguous endings (laughs) but not everyone does and especially if you come from that science fiction bent where you're like where is the science explanation of what is going on exactly And I think this, too, is a really good illustration of how a book can be totally terrible. Like, there's some really bad stuff that happens in this book to this family and to other people. But by the end, it's pretty touching. And basically, at the beginning of the story, this family is sort of falling apart. The marriage is kind of just one of convenience, staying together for the kids kind of a thing. And as the story progresses, this family comes together. And by the end, it's it's pretty touching. So I hesitate to call it hopeful, I guess, just because of all the completely horrible things that happen in the book. But I get a little choked up by the end of this book but as far as the rating goes i think i'll put this one in the fridge there's some really upsetting stuff that (laughs) that happens in this book that if i were not on books in the freezer i'd have a hard time recommending it i'd be like i don't want to freak people out too much but i believe in the listeners to books in the freezer yeah i think we got a tough crowd they can handle it oh yeah the next book i'm going to talk about is bird box by josh mallerman Uh, The kind of apocalypse is unknown. The synopsis is the world is basically overcome by a plague. And if a person looks at it, they are driven to deadly violence. So the only way to survive is to cover your eyes. And in this book, we follow Mallory and her two young children who have been living in an abandoned house. And circumstances cause her and her two children to attempt a 20-mile journey in a rowboat blindfolded. And they have to worry, is something following them? Oh my gosh, this book is so atmospheric and there is just so much terror. And we have two timelines, which I think Josh Mallerman does a great job at kind of the back and forth. So we get the timeline where we are following Mallory, her two children in the rowboat. And then the other timeline that we're switching back and forth is kind of everything happening, everything going down, Mallory finding this abandoned house, everything that happened in this house and the events that led her to where we are now with the rowboat. And when we follow just the group of people living in the abandoned house and even just the scenes where someone is blindfolded and has to go out to run an errand because that's just every time you're outside, you have to wear a blindfold. The scenes where they feel like something grays against their skin, I was terrified by them. You don't know what it could be. You're blindfolded. And he just did such a great job of bringing the horror to that of just your vulnerability. And I really enjoyed this book. This is actually going to be a Netflix movie coming out later this year starring Sandra Bullock as Mallory. And I am really excited for it. I would put this in the fridge, like I said, just because there were so many scenes. And I think I made it sound like people just go outside and they feel something and they get scared. Like there's some horrific stuff that happens as well. And when we get into the details of what exactly happens when you look at whatever it is that causes people to do this, just the consequences of that are horrific. Have either of you read this one? I have. Yes, we talked about this. (laughs) Yeah, I have as well. I'm very curious to see how they'll do the movie. Like, is it just going to be a black screen with audio going on? I'm very interested to see how they do that. Yeah, or I wonder if the camera is just going to be like on Sandra Bullock, like reacting. Mm, That could be. That's kind of what I was wondering. I'm like, you as the reader are imagining blackness. 
Yeah. I feel like for a movie, it would be weird for them to have so much of the screen black. But at the same time, we can actually see Sandra Bullock and like see that be like, oh, she's just brushing against a leaf. It kind of takes out the suspense. Like if we're able to see more than the character is. So I'm torn how they're going to do this and if I'm going to be happy with the adaptation. Yeah, it's gutsy. So my other pick is World War Z, An Oral History of the Zombie War by Max Brooks. And this one kind of touches on the side of science fiction, post-apocalyptic, but it has zombies, so I decided that it was horror enough to include here. And this novel is set in the aftermath of a global zombie plague, where an agent of the UN post-war commission is tasked with conducting interviews and recording the individual accounts of the survivors. This is told in multiple perspectives, and there's a great variety of stories included in this book, highlighting the different political and social aspects of this devastating event. This is basically a social commentary on how different countries and political groups would react if a zombie outbreak actually ever happened. So for instance, Israel actually did quite well in this future because they already so isolated that they just simply closed their borders and were able to control who was coming in and out of their country. In South Africa, the government adopts a contingency plan that was originally drafted during the apartheid era and uses that to combat the situation. And because zombies in this world freeze solid in severe cold, many of the North Americans have headed up to the northern wilderness of Canada, which I always enjoy when Canada is like the safe place in a zombie (laughs) apocalypse. However, of course, you have the issue that people are then dying of starvation and hypothermia. And then there's a mysterious fact that all of North Korea has just mysteriously disappeared. And I'm not going to say more about that. But I would actually put this as room temperature because the fact that it's set 10 years after the plague. So you already know that whoever is left, those are the survivors, and it lacks the suspense of reading something that's set in the present tense. At this point, there are still millions of zombies that are quote-unquote alive, and the UN military is slowly controlling and killing them off. But for the most part, like I said, this is like after the fact, things are getting under control, and it's really at the point they're trying to rebuild I guess what could make this book scary is the fact that it's very possible. It's so grounded in reality and really looking at, like I said, how people react. And it's not so much the horror of the zombies, but the horror of what people and organizations will do if something like this were to happen. I mentioned this on our audiobook episode because it has full cast narration and it's amazing in terms of performances. I definitely recommend this. I personally keep bugging Stephanie to read this because I know you like a full cast narration, so I really think you would like this one. I don't think you've had a chance to read it yet, but I will keep bugging you until you do. Okay. (laughs) I think my library has it, so I will put it on hold. Have you read this one, PT? Yes, I liked it a lot. I thought the kind of the oral history aspect of it was a really cool approach to take. And I liked how it, it kind of made it feel, you know, more real, like you're watching a Ken Burns documentary or something about the zombie wars. Yeah, you're right. It had a really documentary feel to it for sure. And that is World War Z, An Oral History of the Zombie War by Max Brooks. I love how you guys always say the name of the book at the end. It always makes it very convenient for us listeners. The last book that I wanted to recommend is Earthworm Gods by Brian Keane. The apocalypse in this book is rain. It's just been raining for a really long time. You might have also seen this book. I think it was originally published as The Conqueror Worms. But the synopsis is it's been raining nonstop for 40 days. And our main character is an 80-year-old man who lives on a mountaintop in West Virginia. And he hasn't had any contact with the outside world in weeks. As far as he knows, he could be the last person left alive. But somehow he's managed to survive up on this mountaintop. And then, just when he thinks his troubles can't get any worse, giant earthworms show up. Wow. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I remember grabbing this book at the library. I was just looking at books and couldn't find one, couldn't find one. And my wife was like, all right, you've been looking forever. We have to go. And I just grabbed this one kind of off the shelf on a whim because it looked super ridiculous. But I was surprised by like how, you know, it seems like it would be a really cheesy concept. These giant worms, you think of the movie Tremors or something like that. But the way he plays it is actually scary and actually really cool. It kind of has the tone of like a zombie novel, which, you know, Brian Keene has written a lot of those. So that kind of makes sense. We have our main character and eventually some other characters start to show up as well. And it's kind of this small group of people trying to fight off this almost unstoppable force of these giant earthworms that they're battling against. The other really cool thing I think that Brian Keene does with this book is that, you know, we know about the giant earthworms because there's a crazy painting of them on the covers where they're like as tall as a skyscraper kind of thing. But the characters for a long time in the book don't know what they're dealing with. So he uses that technique uh, in a very effective way, I think, where things are happening the characters don't know what it is but we kind of know what's going to happen and he really plays with that idea and very slowly has the characters figure out what's happening even though we already know and there's some really cool characters in this book it was cool too to see a novel from the point of view of like an elderly guy kind of an interesting and unique perspective so as far as the scariness rating i probably put this book in the fridge man i just realized i put all my books in the fridge now i seem uh, stale gonna have no room for groceries (laughs) i guess not i think he basically made this book as scary as you possibly could being a book about giant earthworms that's about fridge level that sounds fun yeah it definitely is i think there's a sequel too i've not read the sequel though and the last book i'm gonna talk about is dread nation by justina ireland kind of apocalypse zombies during the civil war So this book straddles a lot of lines like it is kind of in more of the dystopian side because this is sometime after the Civil War and we're kind of seeing the United States try to figure out how to go from here. So in this book, zombies or ramblers, as they're called, disrupted the Civil War. So they had to put that aside and kind of defined this new world. The United States enacted the Native and Negro Reeducation Act, which requires certain children to attend combat schools and learn how to kill the dead. And it gives our hero Jane, who is a Negro girl and the daughter of a wealthy Southern white woman, a chance at a better life since she is studying to be an attendant, which is basically a helper, a protector to upper class ladies who would accompany them and be there to ward off any zombies. There's a wrench in her plans when she comes upon something that she wasn't supposed to see and she's exposed to a dark underbelly of this new world. This is the first in a young adult series and Jane is such a great hero. She is very competent and very snarky and there's a lot with the civil war coming to an end and the world is in this reparation mode that doesn't necessarily mean that the country has has come to a solution with its slavery problem or its issues with racism. They've just kind of found different ways to work around that and just the fight that's going on within the country. And the thing that she's not supposed to see, she really gets sucked into this conspiracy and it becomes very dangerous. There's a lot of gore with the zombie kills and a lot like The Walking Dead, a lot of the horror or the horrible things that are being done are not necessarily the zombies, but the horrible things that people can do to each other. And what I loved in this is that in between the chapters, there are snippets from Jane's letter to her mother telling her how great everything is at the school. So, you know, you just read this chapter about everything that's going wrong. And in between the chapters, it's like, yes, mother, like we are learning so much in our school. And someday I hope to like blah, blah, blah. (laughs) 
and it's just a real shift in tone. And then it goes right back into all of this stuff that she is having to deal with. So this was very fast paced, very fun. I think it dealt with a lot and gives the reader a lot to think about. But ultimately, I would say this is room temperature, but worth checking out. This just came out. The sequel hasn't come out yet. So this is a series that's still in progress. But that is Dread Nation by Justina Ireland. So let's end the episode talking about some of our chilling obsessions. And I wanted to go first talking about one that just came onto my radar in the last 24 hours. As you both know, I had a little bit of a medical scare, just had a lot of stress yesterday. And thankfully everything's okay, it's all good. But I was a little bit anxious. And so I decided to kind of look online for like some kind of podcast or like something to kind of like relax me. And so I ended up checking out a podcast called Within the Wires, and this is basically a meditation exercise podcast, but it's created by Night Vale, so it still totally counts for this episode because, of course, I couldn't just do something normal. So this first season, you as the listener of this podcast are an inmate in a place called The Institute, and you are being guided through these meditation exercises by this calming female voice, and she is your relaxation instructor. So on surface level, it's exactly what it sounds like. It was very relaxing. I don't know if you've ever done one of those tapes. I have like years ago where they're like, lie down, close your eyes, you know, let your fingers flow. You're on the beach, like all of that kind of cheesy meditation stuff. Nothing wrong if you enjoy that. But that's this podcast, except it's slightly creepy because it's done by Night Vale. And so it is slower paced. It's not totally horrifying, but it's just not quite right. So as you're getting led through these exercises, the narrator just keeps saying things that are just slightly odd. She's like, close your eyes. It's just you. You're alone in your room. No one's there. No one's watching. And then later on, she's like, yeah, someone was actually watching you and, you know, things like that. So there's just little things that like they really slip in there and little nods that just make things just a little bit off and that's almost my favorite kind of horror is that really subtle horror and so this was what I fell asleep to last night because I needed to calm down and it was weird and creepy and exactly what I needed I really enjoyed it I heard that the second season is a series of museum audio guides and that sounds like a lot of fun too and there's supposed to be a third season coming up I'm still just early into season one but if you want a relaxing meditation experience but are like me and kind of need a horror bent to everything that you consume that is within the wires which again is created by night Vale and is so much fun that sounds great i'm definitely subscribing to that it's so fun <laughs> i had no idea night Vale did that yeah i love night Vale. i still need to venture out into their spin-off shows so that sounds really good yeah i think most people know night Vale, but i don't think everyone necessarily has tried their other spin-offs like you mentioned for sure the thing I'm recommending is also a podcast. It is the You Must Remember This podcast, which is actually a history podcast. And it's a podcast about the first century of Hollywood. Right now, there's a series on fake news, Hollywood Babylon, or stories that weren't fact-checked and were bloated with speculation to sell papers. And I know you guys are thinking this is a horror thing. You're supposed to recommend horror things. So I will recommend the season before this one. The whole podcast is done by Karina Longworth. She researches and writes and narrates and produces basically everything. And she does series. So she did a series on like dead blondes in Hollywood. So things like Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. But she also does series where she compares and contrasts 
to actors and their careers and trajectories and personal lives. So the series before the one that's out now was Bela and Boris, where she compared and contrasted the lives and careers of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And Bela Lugosi is obviously famous for playing Dracula and Boris Karloff for playing Frankenstein. And what I thought was really fascinating about this series is it's obviously covering the time period around the 30s is Hollywood and the studios kind of realizing that people like horror and that horror movies will sell and them trying to kind of figure out why and try to find something to cater to this market that they didn't know they had and thinking like, oh, like these movies can actually make money. This is actually something people want to see. So just thinking about how we're kind of dealing with that now, like studios realizing like, oh yeah, like people like horror and horror can be smart and done well. And it was very fascinating, very well researched. Just absolutely love everything about this podcast, but definitely recommend the Abela and Boris series that came out last year. So that is the You Must Remember This podcast. That's such a you podcast. It's like pop culture with just a little bit of horror in that season. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've listened to a couple episodes, but I haven't listened to the Bella and Boris season. That sounds excellent. I will definitely listen to that. So my chilling obsession, I'm calling an audible. I was going to recommend a movie, but I'm going to keep it in the podcast realm so I can keep our theme of podcast here. The podcast that I'm going to recommend is called Sawbones. It's a medical history podcast. And it's hosted by Dr. Sydney McElroy and her husband, Justin McElroy, who's one of the hosts of the popular My Brother, My Brother and Me podcast. Basically what they do each week is they talk about some sort of illness or some sort of medical procedure or treatment and talk about the history of like going as far back as there are records. Like how do we treat, I don't know, arthritis or something going way back. And they talk about all the crazy different ways that have been used to treat different illnesses and different things that people thought were great medical procedures back in the day. The, the doctor, Dr. Sydney, is super smart and super knowledgeable and always brings tons of insights. And then her husband, Justin, is kind of the comic relief and always asking the dumb questions and things like that. So it's not technically a horror thing, but some of those medical procedures of the past are pretty horrifying. Their motto that they always say at the end of every episode is don't drill a hole in your head. Since that was a popular medical procedure back in the day, people drilling holes in their heads to relieve all sorts of different types of illnesses. So that is Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Oh, that sounds horrifying. (laughs) That sounds fun. Well, thank you so much, PT, for joining us. This was a lot of fun, and we really appreciated you spending all this time. We had so many questions, and I think, you know, we really got to explore post-apocalyptic horror and prove that it doesn't necessarily have to be all dark and depressing, and even if it is, we kind of like it anyway. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Before we let you go, where can people find you online? Probably the best place, you can go to pthilton.com, and that's p-t-h-y-l-t-o-n.com, or you can find me on all the social medias as P.T. Hilton. As always, I know Stephanie always is so great to leave all your information in the show notes, so that'll be at booksinthefreezer.com, but it was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm a regular listener, and this is a thrill to be on here. Now I just got to get on like Radio Lab, and then I'll be set. (laughs) (laughs) We're a stepping stone to the big leagues. (laughs) 
So Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can send us an email at booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Our show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at booksinthefreezer.com. You can find us on Patreon as Books in the Freezer and a special thank you to our patrons, Laura, Liz, Devin, Sarai, Roger, Emily, Denise, Anthony, Jason, Leanne, Elizabeth, Sean, Mitch, Alicia, Christopher, David, and PT. If you're looking for a free way to support the podcast, be sure to leave us a review on a podcast app. It helps people find us. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N or on YouTube at That's What She Read. And I'm Rachel. You can find me on Twitter at Shades underscore Orange or on YouTube and Instagram at The Shades of Orange. So join us next time for Books in the Freezer.